As we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and today we'll be studying verses 12 to 16 in this message entitled, For God and Glory. For God and Glory. Uh, This passage, 12 to 16, flows right out of verses 1 to 11, where we learn from Paul's example that when faced with the pressures of the world and conflicts from within the church, we stand firm in the Lord by remembering who we are in Christ, losing ourselves for Christ, and living in the power of Christ. If you missed any of those messages, we walked through verses 1 to 11 in three messages. You can go to the app and listen to those from earlier in February. Those really are the foundation of this passage and the passage we'll look at next week from the rest of the chapter. But in our text, it seems as though Paul is anticipating uh, the possibility that some might respond to his example by saying, Well, that's easy for you, Paul. You had visions of Christ. You had a personal encounter with Christ and had direct revelation from Christ. So, of course, it's easy for you to say to live as Christ. I mean, how closer can you get to Christ than you already have, Paul? Paul unravels that objection and emphasizes in our text that all of us, including him, have not arrived. In fact, fact, if we are to stand firm, we have to cultivate the attitude that as long as there is track left in front of us, our race has not finished. And so we must keep pressing on for Christ. Follow along as I read Philippians 12. I'm going to read all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1, and then we'll come back and focus on 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you think you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, 
my beloved. A hare was making fun of a tortoise one day for being so slow. Do you ever get anywhere, he said with a laugh. Yes, replied the tortoise, and I get there sooner than you think. I'll run you a race to prove it. The hare was much amused at the thought of running with a tortoise, but for the fun of it, he agreed. And so the fox, who consented to be the judge, marked the distance and started the runners off. The hare was soon far out of sight, and to make the tortoise feel very silly about how it was for him to try to race with a hare, he lay down next to the course and took a nap until the tortoise should catch up. Now the tortoise, meanwhile, kept going slowly but steadily, and after a time he passed the hare. But the hare slept on very peacefully. And when at last he did wake up, the tortoise was near the goal. The hare now ran as swift as he could, but he could not overtake the tortoise in time. Aesop's fable teaches us that the race is not always to the swift. What cost the hare the race was not injury or obstacle or unfair rules. It was his mindset. He was so blinded by self-confidence and pride that he intentionally stopped racing, assuming he'd be able to kick it into gear when he needed to. Isn't that the attitude of so many people today when it comes to God? I don't need to worry about religion. I want to have, life. I want to have fun now and I'll get serious with God later on in life. Isn't that the attitude of so many Christians? I don't need to be that serious about Christ. I don't need to give that much of my life. I'll fit Christ into the crevices and corners of my life between my job and hobbies and sports and vacations. Isn't this sometimes the attitude that we have? I've been in church all my life. I don't need to take any more growing disciples classes or join a small group. I'm really not sure that there's anything left for me to learn. And yet, isn't it true that when faced with a trial or a conflict, maybe we're sinned against or we're trapped in a pattern of sin or we've been misled by some false teaching, we suddenly realize that we've taken a long nap in the race of faith. We've been blinded by complacency and lost our bearings. We've, been, we've not been diligent in reading our Bibles or taking advantages of the many opportunities to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's not unusual that when teaching of some truth from Scripture to someone in counseling that has a significant impact on their life, their immediate response is, why don't people know this? Well, there's some responsibility borne by pastors and churches who don't provide biblical teaching, but we are all responsible for our own spiritual growth, especially with the amount of resources available to anyone with an internet connection. Too often, we are lulled to sleep 
by the distractions around us. And before we know it, we haven't fed ourselves from the word of God in months, if not years. This has happened to all of us at one point in time or another. Well, verses 11, uh, 1 to 11 of this chapter are a wake-up call to give ourselves once again to be found in Christ, to know Christ, and to live in the power of Christ. But even when we do that, sometimes over time, that can fade into the background of our lives. And so what Paul does next in verses 12 and following in an effort to help us to stand firm in the Lord, is he calls us to diligence and perseverance. You can see how in verse 12, he says, I press on. And then in verse 14, he says, I press on. And then in verses 15 and 17, he calls us to imitate and follow his example. The verb there, I press on, is an interesting choice of words. It's a word that occurs 45 times in the New Testament, and 30 of those times it means to persecute. As in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted, same word, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The root idea here is to chase or to zealously pursue something. Persecution is the zealous pursuit by unbelievers to in any way possible marginalize or eliminate followers of Christ. But you can also pursue something good. Paul says in Romans 14, 19, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Or 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the idea of pressing on here in Philippians 3 is not a casual, haphazard way of moving forward as if one is just merely obligated to trudge on. Rather, it's a purposeful, intentional, thoughtful, strategic, and sacrificial effort to go after something. And in this case, we are to press on in being found in Christ, in growing in the knowledge of Christ, and in living in the power of Christ. But it's not just enough to say to one another, keep calm, carry on, keep pressing on. Now, pressing on becomes very difficult very fast in a sin-cursed world. So in this text of verses 12 to 16, through Paul's personal example and his admonition, we learn four motivations for pressing on. Four motivations for pressing on. These four motivations are, first, that we are not there yet. We haven't arrived, so don't let up. We are not there yet. Second, we have been captured by Christ. He has rescued us from the kingdom, kingdom of darkness, and now we belong to Him. We have been captured by Christ. Third, we will receive the reward. We must keep our eyes on the prize that's awaiting us when we reach the end of our race. We will receive our reward. And fourth, this... Pr- Pressing on is a sign of maturity. If we are not pressing on, it's a warning that we are in spiritual danger. 
It's a sign of maturity. As you probably noticed when we read through it, verses 12 to 16, Paul doesn't speak in a linear fashion. He repeats himself a couple times. And so as we walk through these motivations, we'll have to work in and out of the passage uh, and move around it. So let's start by considering the first motivation. We are not there yet. We are not there yet. Look at verses 12. At verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And then verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Perhaps because of Paul's friendship with the Philippian church and their love and respect for him, there might have been some who perceived that Paul was as nearly perfect as humanly possible. And you know how it is. You, you observe a respected spiritual leader from afar and you get the impression that they probably don't struggle with any sin. Whether it's from their preaching or their writing or their teaching, uh, you get the impression that they know God so well and His Word uh, that they probably don't battle sin in their life because they're always talking about truth. They're always teaching the truth. They're always living. They must be living according to the truth consistently. Now, of course, in our better moments, we know that can't be true. But it's very easy to assume such things of our leaders. And so Paul wants to dispel that notion as quickly as possible. After all, he said in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in more detail, he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He also said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Those things are the driving realities of Paul's life. They are not the perfection of his life. Because he also said in Romans chapter 7, For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now that's not the totality of his life, but it is a reality of his life, just as it is in yours and mine, isn't it? When God saves a person, He transforms them essentially, but not completely. Nor is there some kind of a second blessing that propels you to a higher standard of, or a higher level of Christian living. That is the idea of Keswick theology, which teaches that there are two stages in the Christian life. The first stage is salvation, where you are forgiven of your sin and justified in Christ. The second stage is called entire sanctification, or second blessing, meaning now you are perfectly holy and sinless. Oh, sure, you might make mistakes from time to time, <laughs> but you don't have any more sin. Well, to that, 1 John 1.8 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we are deceived ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we do indeed have sin. We are not completely sanctified. 
Now, having said all that, if you if you look at the text, you can see that there are three ways that Paul describes his lack of perfection. He says there in verse 12 again that he has not already obtained it. And then he says that he's not already become perfect. And then in verse 13, he says that he's not laid hold of it yet. Uh, those three statements refer to the same reality from three different angles. He means here that he has, is not full of the knowledge of Christ. He hasn't fully grasped it. Uh, he's not yet been fully perfected in living in the power of Christ. God's work in him has not yet been completed. And he's not laid hold of the resurrection from the dead. He hasn't attained final sanctification. To put it briefly, he has not yet been glorified. So we could say he is still in his sin-cursed body. His mind is not full of the knowledge of Christ. And his life is not completely conformed to Christ-likeness. If you think of life as a cross-country race, he hasn't passed the finish line yet. He's still somewhere on the trail making his way, but there is yet more path in front of him. There's more to learn, there's more sin to be defeated, and there's more likeness to Christ to be had. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, how is that a motivation uh, to press on? Well, there's a variety of things we could say. But I want to just give you one for today. Think about this. Every day in this life that you choose to deny yourself and live for Christ is a day in which you glorify God in a way that you won't be able to in eternity. While in this life, you and I have the unique opportunity to put on display that Christ is greater than everything else in life. When we're in glory and in eternity, everyone will be perfected and sin will be no more. We will worship Christ in ways beyond our imagination. But one thing we won't be able to do is to prove to the world, the sinful world, the flesh, and the devil, that, he, that Christ is worthy of our love and obedience more than them. The pressures we experience in a sin-cursed world are opportunities to choose God over sin and self that won't exist in heaven because nothing will be pressuring us to move away from Christ. Perhaps you can identify with a sufferer, sufferer who said the kinds of words to me that a Christian wonders if they can say out loud. I know God is sovereign but sometimes I feel like a pawn. When suffering hits you from every side and it's unrelenting, it can feel like you are at the mercy of a sovereign God who says He's out for your good, but it does not feel like He's out for your good. Well, as we walked and talked together, we reflected about Job and how he looked at his suffering, when we look at his suffering, rather, we assume that because it ended well for him, everything that he lost was not just replaced, but it was doubled. We assume that that means he lived happily ever after. But friends, don't forget, Job lost 10 adult children in one day. 
the fact that the Lord gave him ten more did not take away the grief and the sorrow of the ten he lost. If Job was human, and he was, there's no doubt that he continued to grieve his ten lost children the rest of his life. But whether for Job it was the day that he lost his kids, or 30 years later, his response put on display that no matter how much he lost, God was still worthy of his worship. He said, God really is good. That was a demonstration that he could put to the, to the devil that he wouldn't be able to put in heaven. So every day that you and I live, whether it's a great day or a sorrowful day, we can press on knowing that we have the unique ability in this life to glorify God over and against all other competing desires. So we're not at the end of our race yet, which means we must press on until the Lord calls us home. We are not there yet. The second motivation for pressing on is that we have been captured by Christ. We have been captured by Christ. Look again at verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. When he says there, for which, I, for which also I was laid hold of, the words for which is a literal translation and the Greek words mean exactly that. But almost every other time those two words in the Greek are used in the New Testament, it's an idiom that means because, meaning it's giving an explanation. That's why the ESV, which many of you have, says, I press on to make it my own because... Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or the Christian standard version says, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. And just for the sake of example, Paul uses the same construction in Romans 5.12 where he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so it is in other places in the New Testament. So on balance, it seems better to take what Paul is saying here as because, even though both translations make good sense. I mean, if we were to take the New American Standard as it is, and other translations as well, what we would be saying is that we should be striving for the same purpose that Christ had in saving us. Other passages of Scripture affirm that, like Titus 2, 11 to 14. But if we go with the ESV and other, pass, other translations, the meaning is that we are motivated to press on because we have been saved by Christ. Both statements are true, but Paul's theology tends to emphasize the fact that our salvation itself is our motivation for pressing on, a motivation for sanctification. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, Verse 27, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is to say that God has done these things for us. He has saved us and redeemed us. And that is the measure, that is the standard of the kind of life he calls us to live. In other words, our life should be an accurate reflection of the saving work of Christ. We're motivated to live for Him because 
we belong to him. Or in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, knowing that God works in us through these ways, this is a, a Trinitarian statement of our experience of Christ and knowing that God has done these things for us. He's given us encouragement. He's granted His love for us. He's, we have fellowship with the Spirit. These salvation realities propel us to pursue unity with one another. And then, of course, in chapter 2, verses 5 and following, we see that Christ's humility should motivate us to imitate His example and cultivate humility in our lives. And then in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, knowing that God is working in us motivates us to work out, to exercise our salvation. If God wasn't working in us, it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to fulfill God's commands. But because He is working in us, we can keep going. These are all ways of saying that Christ has saved us, and so being His motivates us to persevere. Now, I've worded this particular point that we are to press on because we have been captured by Christ. If you look at the end of verse 12, he says, I was laid hold of by Christ. Uh, the Greek verb there is an intensified form of the verb earlier in the verse, which is translated obtained. And it means uh, to win, to attain, to seize, or to catch. Think of it this way. In our unredeemed state, we were hostile to God, wanting nothing to do with Him, and happily residing among the ranks of the devil's army. But in the battle that Christ won against Satan, if you can call it a battle, Jesus captured many of Satan's followers. That's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verses 7 to 12 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, quoting the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That's us. And he gave gifts to men. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So when Christ saved us, we became his spoils of war. But because of the kind of king that he is, he laid hold of us, not in a way that causes us misery. Rather, He freed us from our former dictator and He gave us all of the rights and privileges of being citizens of His great kingdom. There in Ephesians 4, the quote from the Old Testament is from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a victory psalm that reflects on God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. God waged war with Egypt and seized his people from the grip of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so in the same way, Paul says, in Christ's victory over Satan, Christ laid hold of a people for himself, rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness. We've been captured by Christ. 
Now, many people have come to the United States, as we know, fleeing cruel and wicked dictators from all over the world. And upon arrival, even if they've come empty handed, they experienced freedom and opportunity and provision far beyond what they experienced in their home country. There are, of course, many challenges that come with uh, entering a new country, learning a new language, living in a different culture. But despite the, challenge, despite the challenges, those who fled the reign of terror are joyful to be free and have the opportunity to work and provide for themselves and their loved ones. No matter how hard life might be in this country, one who left a dreadful place never wants to go back. Now, in this, there's something we learn about the deceptiveness of sin. That we who have been rescued from Satan's kingdom and have been given life and liberty in Christ and who've become recipients of an eternal inheritance, we are often tempted to submit ourselves again to our old master. We are like the Israelites who enjoyed the miraculous provision and protection from God in the wilderness. And yet they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish when we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing left to look at except this manna. What was once a joyful experience of having the miraculous delivery of food at your doorstep every day became a misery for them. Their sinful hearts became ungrateful. And when they looked back at their life in Egypt, all they could remember was the food they ate, altogether forgetting the whips on their backs, their bodies crushed under hard labor, and their babies drowned in the river. Friends, that's what temptation is. If you want a definition for temptation, it is the exaggerated memory of momentary pleasure and the complete forgetting of the misery of sin. It's the exaggerated memory of momentary pleasure and the complete forgetting of the misery of sin. But when we remember that we belong to Christ and all that is Christ belongs to us, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we remember that He has chosen us, that He's predestined us, that He's redeemed us and forgiven us and lavished His grace upon us and given us hope and eternal life, we can shake our head at temptation and say, no, it wasn't great back then, and you didn't fulfill your promise last time, and I am in Christ, and He is mine, and in Him is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Beloved, we can press on because we are not there yet and because we have been captured by Christ. Consider the third motivation for pressing on. We will receive the reward. We will receive the reward. We'll talk more about this next week from verses 20 to 21, but we'll cover it a little bit today. Look at verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. The prize is what is the reward that a runner receives when he or she finishes the race. Paul uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So when Paul says here in Philippians that he is pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, I take the prize to mean the reward that we will receive when Christ calls us to Himself through death or rapture. Now what is that reward? What's the prize? Well, here's how Paul would describe it in 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love His appearing. James describes the reward in James 1.12, saying, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Or Peter describes the reward this way in 1 Peter 5.4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of of glory. So the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the unfading crown of glory. So are we going to be in heaven wearing a triple crown? Or is it going to be like medieval times where everybody's seeming around with crowns on their head? After all, Revelation 4.10 says that the 24 elders will cast their, th- their crowns before the throne in worship. Well, Revelation 4 does indeed speak of the crowns of the 24 elders in a very literal way, but I don't think these other passages refer to literal crowns. In fact, look back at chapter 4 there of Philippians, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. The Philippians are the crown of Paul. You can study this on your own, but there are many other places in the New Testament where crown is used as a figurative, uh, in a figurative way to speak of a reward. When you think about the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the unfading crown of glory, I believe that they all refer to the same reality that Paul speaks of here in verse 14 as the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, namely, our glorification. Beloved, when we die or when Christ returns, our immediate reward will be that the remaining sin in us will be stripped away. And anything in us that is not yet conformed to the image of Christ will be fully formed. And the work that God began at the beginning of our salvation will be completed. We will be fully sanctified. Which is just another way of saying we will be glorified. We will be ourselves in every way that God uniquely made us. But we will be like Him in all the ways that He made us to be in His image. There will be nothing about us that is deformed or distorted or disabled or defaced. The effects of sin will be completely gone from our bodies and our minds. Our hearts will be fully aligned with His heart. Our desires will be His desires. Our convictions will be His convictions. We will perfectly and eternally love the things that God loves. 
We will perfectly and eternally hate the things that God hates. We will delight in the things that God delights in. We will never be at odds with Him or anybody else again. We'll never miscommunicate. We'll never experience temptation again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will characterize all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions. That is the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the unfading crown of glory. That when we see Him, we will be like Him. That is the prize for those who press on and don't fall away. Is this or is this not something to look forward to? Is this or is this not something that motivates us to press on no matter what difficulties we face in the here and now? Indeed it is. Look at, again, at how this motivates Paul in verse 13. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is Paul being pushed forward in light of the glory of the future. What does he mean by forgetting what lies behind? Well, we could say at least three things. Forgetting what lies behind means he does not dwell on past failures that would discourage him from pressing on. You know, sometimes we remember our past sins and get discouraged to the point that it hinders us from moving forward in the freedom and power of Christ. We could also say that to forget what lies behind not, um, means to not rely on past victory over sin. As if you don't need to be vigilant anymore because you've gotten past that sin and are no longer susceptible to it. A third meaning is that to forget what lies behind means to not rely on the golden years of one's spiritual life. As if past growth defines current spiritual maturity. As every athlete knows and as every observer of retired athletes sees, it doesn't take long before the body wastes away when not kept in shape. And so it is with our souls. Paul ran his race as any runner should, looking ahead and not behind. He kept his eye on the prize, and unlike the hare, he didn't slow down because he believed he was far enough ahead and didn't need to try so hard. In fact, as you look at verse 13, when he says, reaching forward, that word means to strain, to reach out. To stretch out. It's almost like that final position that a, that a runner makes at the last second to gain another millisecond, you know, bowing their head and leaning forward. It's almost like that was Paul's effort throughout the whole of his Christian life. Well, connecting the prize and our effort, 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself because he is pure. Knowing that you're going to be like Christ later should not make you complacent. If it does, you're not really understanding what it means to be like Christ. 
Listen to these beautiful words from 2 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell within them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Paul says, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, in that passage, Paul is referring to those promises in the present that God is with us now. How much more should the final fulfillment of those promises motivate us? All right, Revelation says, in fact, quotes that very verse. That in the end of this world, we will be with God and He will be with us. We will be His people and He will be our God. Do we really want to stand before Him and say, Yeah, God, I just really wasn't motivated to press on. No, we are to press on motivated by the fact that we are not there yet. That we've been captured by Christ and that we will receive the reward. We'll consider the final motivation. Namely that this is a sign of maturity. This is a sign of maturity. Pressing on is a sign of maturity. Look at verses 15 and 16. Therefore let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The language here can be confusing. In verse 12, he says he wasn't perfect. But here he seems to be saying that he's among those who are perfect. So which is it, Paul? Well, the word translated perfect is one of those terms that has multiple nuances. The Greek word teleos often means to be complete. It's translated that way in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with wisdom, with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. But another nuance of the word is the idea of maturity. It's used that way in Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It seems as though Paul is conveying the idea of complete in verse 12 when he says, I am not yet perfect, I am not yet complete. But then in verse 15, he seems to mean the idea of maturity. That's why the ESV translates it, that let those of us who are mature think this way. So what Paul is saying here is that mature believers are those who are committed to pressing on and being rightly motivated to pursue Christ. So when you see someone who is passionate for Christ, who gives themselves in the service of Christ, who continues to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, no matter how old they are or what their past experiences have been, that is a spiritually mature person. Listen, it is not a sign of spiritual maturity to think that you don't need to be taught anymore, even if the subject is something you've studied before. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity to think that you've read enough books, you've heard enough sermons, you've taken enough classes, you've been sitting under good teaching so long that now you can just coast. 
and take the minimum intake of God's Word the rest of your spiritual life. No, there is always more to learn. There's always more sin to put off and always more godliness to put on. There are more ways to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and imitate Him in the new seasons and challenges that life brings. So if you've been resting on your laurels, trusting in past success and coasting in your walk with the Lord, let that be a sign to you that you are lacking in maturity. You need to sit up and press on in your pursuit of Christ. Remember that the scripture says, let him who stands take heed that he does not fall. Then Paul says there, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. There's two ways one could take this. Both of them essentially arrive at the same place. The first possible meaning is that if anyone disagrees with Paul's teaching, God will open their eyes to the truth. God will reveal this also to you. The second possible meaning is that if anyone disagrees with Paul's teaching, God will bring them around to right thinking. He will open their eyes to their error, I should say. One is he'll open their eyes to the truth. The other one is they will, God will open their eyes to error, to their error. And I think it helps to remember that Paul is writing to his friends. Sometimes when you read commentaries on this passage, they're talking about Paul writing to his opponents. I don't see that anywhere in Philippians. He's writing to his friends. And so instead of scolding them and scolding those who might not share Paul's zeal for Christ, he gently reminds them that God will continue his work of sanctification in their life and bring them around to right thinking. And so it is with you and I. Are you discouraged as you hear this text that you don't have the same zeal for Christ that Paul did? Well, wherever you are spiritually, take steps of faith and obedience and trust that the Lord will work in your heart and increase your passion for Christ. That's really what Paul says there in verse 16. However, he says, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, whatever level of maturity you have, whatever your knowledge is of God's word, whatever level of sanctification and godliness you've reached, keep pressing on. Don't sit in a holding pattern. Don't go backward. Don't give up just because you've plateaued and it's too hard to move forward. Keep going onward and upward in your pursuit of Christ. Church, let these four motivators call us to press on. If you are in Christ, no matter what difficulties or trials you've been going through, you can press on because you are not there yet. There is still more to do. You've been captured by Christ. You belong to Him and you are no longer subject to your old master. And you will receive the reward. The day will come when the, the battles and struggles will be over and you will be with God in the fullness of joy forever. And this is a sign of maturity. Scholars keep learning. Athletes keep training. Christians keep growing. Press on for God and glory. Let's pray.
as we have our head bowed before I pray, I just want to encourage you to take a moment and reflect on your own life. And I especially want to encourage those of you who don't know Christ. You can't press on to something you've never started. You can't finish a race where you haven't even crossed the starting line. I would urge you to turn to Christ. Put your faith in Him. Find in Him the forgiveness of your sins. Let Him be your Lord and your Master so that you would know the grace and the goodness of God in your life. And for those of us who are in Christ, consider, is there a truth in the possibility that I've been taking a nap? I've slowed down. I've become prideful and complacent. Commit in your own heart to move forward, to pick up the pace, and to run hard after Christ. God, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, that because we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven, we are justified and set free from the power and the penalty of sin, that even when we harbor sin in our life, and even when we do take a nap spiritually, that forgiveness is found in you, and we don't need to wallow in guilt and shame, but we can confess that to you, and we can acknowledge it and ask for your help. And so we do that, Lord. We, we ask that your Spirit would move in our hearts, would increase our love and our passion for Christ. That if there's anything that we need to repent of, anything that we need to stop doing in our life, anything that is distracting us from knowing Christ more and living for Him, Lord, would you bring that to our mind and empower us and energize us to do it so that Christ would be glorified in us. We pray these things in His name. Amen.